Uh, I want to start this morning actually just from reading uh, John 1. Uh, So John 1, right from the beginning. uh, The title is, The Word Became Flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We'll return uh, to John 1 a little bit later on as well, but as you can see from up on the uh, screen there, that uh, today we're beginning our series, as has already been mentioned, uh, called the Incarnation Series. So this is going to happen over the next three weeks leading up to Christmas. My job today is to help you realise, hopefully, some important background information about the Incarnation of Jesus. My main aim, really, is to hopefully kind of jolt us out of the relaxed attitude that I think it's really easy to lapse into when it comes to Christmas. You know, we know and most of us have probably been taught since we were uh, kids that Christmas is all about celebrating the birth of Jesus. But the commercialization of the holiday, as well as all of the traditional elements of the story that we know, like uh, the three wise men and the shepherds uh, and the manger, it kind of all combines, I think, to sometimes mean possibly even most of the time, that we lose sight of how incredible the incarnation of Jesus really is. And that's what I want to talk about today, just how incredible it actually is. Um, Today I'm going to be, uh, there's a quote that talks about standing on the shoulders of giants. That's what I'm going to do today. As with most days that I talk, I'll be quoting a lot of different people that have done a lot of excellent research into this, including stuff that was written 300 years, uh, 350 AD. So go right back to some of the giants back in the day. Um, But I do want to start with a quote. I've read some of this quote before and other things that I've talked about uh, here at church, but um, I want to go through the whole thing and we'll explain a little bit afterwards. You can follow along on the screen behind me. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as now you meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. That's from uh, C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory. And it's, I think, an incredible reminder of the fact uh, that we aren't just bodies. We are not just physical things that live here and will one day disappear. You may wonder why I started with a quote like that, because it's kind of a quote about us, about people, if I'm here to talk about Jesus today. But hopefully it'll make sense soon. The word incarnation is a strange word that's probably foreign to most people these days. And even most Christians probably don't really have a full idea of what incarnation actually means. So my job today is hopefully to spell it out a little bit so for the rest of the, uh, the series you actually understand what we're talking about. Admittedly, before I started working on it, I didn't have a very good understanding. And I actually think that 
it's going to be difficult, if ever possible, for us to get a full comprehension of the incarnation of Christ. It's such a mind-blowing miracle. Uh, but we're going to try to spell it out a little bit today. Most of us would have heard of incarnation as part of the larger word reincarnation, probably, which is the pagan belief that people's or animals' spirits inhabit new bodies when the old bodies die. The word incarnation translate to meaning uh, to inhabit a body or to become incarnate, to be within a body. To an extent, you can see we are all kind of examples of incarnation. This is why I started with the quote from Lewis, to remind us that we are all spirits inhabiting bodies. Lewis also says that you're not a body, you are a soul and you have a body. This is a really important fact to remember because I'm endeavouring to try to help you to understand just how mind-blowing and crazy it is that God entered a human body with all of the human constraints that a body gives it. For us, I think we kind of take it for granted that we are in a body. In fact, we can't really conceive of anything else. You know, so much so that we kind of act and live as if we are our body, when in fact our body is more like a, a hermit's crab shell. You know, Eventually we will grow too big for our bodies and we'll have to be taken somewhere else. We are all, at all times, actually spirits. Consider, if you're able to, the concept of being able to be outside of your body or to inhabit somebody else's body. These ideas seem pretty crazy. They're pretty outlandish and impossible, but it's probably because we, we've bought the lie that we're just a body. This is the only thing we've ever known. And, and we've bought the lie that we are only flesh and blood, as so much of society tells us. But as you've heard me say before, if you've been here before, I believe in God's magic and I think it's magic that we are made up of flesh and blood and somehow it is us and yet it's not us at the same time. And this is a paradox. Paradox is, a, is, is quite an apt word that we can use to describe some of the aspects of God which to our limited and logic-obsessed brain may seem impossible contradictions. It's really a paradox that we are a body and a spirit at the same time, simultaneously. The greater paradox, though, is that of the incarnation of Christ. And over the next few weeks, Pete and Nath will be discussing the paradoxes of Jesus being fully man. Jesus was fully a man, 100% a man, and fully God, 100% God. Obviously, 100 plus 100 equals 200%, which is impossible for us to work out, and that's why it's such a paradox. This is going to be a little bit difficult for us to get our head around, probably, but remember, you're never going to get your head around God anyway. It's much better to let him go around your head and surround your head. Let him shed the light where he will. Because you're not going to be able to puzzle out the incarnation with a whole bunch of logic. But you will be able to stand in awe at the incredible miracle that God performed 2,000 years ago in order to save the world, his lost sheep. This guy, Vegan Gurren, who is a religious professor, he said this about the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation sheds light where sin deceives and despair darkens the human horizon. Sin causes us to experience spirit in opposition to matter, faith in conflict with reason, life defeated by death. But the incarnation reveals these apparent contradictions as paradoxes. Contradiction may signal futility, but paradox is pregnant with the possibility of resolution and harmony. See, the incarnation of Christ is first and foremost, it is what God's grand narrative, his story that he tells throughout history, is all about. Lewis called the Incarnation the Grand Miracle. 
he wrote that the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. It was the central event in the history of the earth, the very thing that the whole story has been about. If you've been here for long enough, you've heard us talk about the grand narrative before many times. And this really, this is kind of the, the ultimate moment in the grand narrative when the hero turns up. Chesterton, uh, G.K. Chesterton speaks of the incarnational uh, pattern being represented and duplicated throughout all aspects of God's creation. A giant tree, for example, must drop a tiny seed. It must condescend to the earth, drop a tiny seed, and that seed must die in order for another tree uh, to, to bring more life. You have to remember what happened on the cross is what Christianity is all about. The cross is at the centre of our existence. 1 Corinthians 15.17 says, If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. The death and resurrection of Christ is the centre point of Christianity, but it is significant and it is meaningful and it is adequate to do the work that it did, that is to save mankind from death, because of the incarnation, because of the embodiment of God into a real, fallible infant, a baby. I've got up here three ways to begin a gospel. Obviously, there's four gospels, but I'm going to focus on three of them. Three of the four gospels begin their account with a background to who Christ is. Uh, Luke starts straight away at the point in which uh, Herod is making his decrees and Christ gets born. But the other three actually start before that point in time. And these three beginnings are are all different. The way that they take the approach are all different and they can reveal um, to us much of the miraculous nature of the incarnation. Matthew starts with facts. If you haven't read it, it's an interesting read because there's a lot of names and stuff. But Matthew starts with facts, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It starts all the way back at Abraham, working through to David and then to Jesus. And we see factually that God's story was being written and that Jesus was the hero. This is the grand narrative. He's telling us the background to the story, or he's continuing the story and spelling it out to us. If you haven't read it, it simply spells out that the ancestral connection from Jesus all the way back to King David in the Old Testament, and then to Abraham. And in Matthew 1.17, it kind of sums it up when it says this. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the uh, deportation to Babylon... 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. So there's three lots of 14 generations that it's kind of split the geniality of Christ into, which is 42 generations in total from Abraham to Christ. Over the course of 42 generations, that's 42 different couples having children, God has, wor- God has working, or he was working his plan and writing his story. You know, Romans 8 says that all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his name. Throughout the thousands of years that preceded Jesus' birth, all things, including who married who, who had kids with who, all of those things were working together to tell the story leading to Jesus being born, to bring about the most loving act that God would ever do for us. There's a pastor at the sta- in the States, Mark Driscoll, who um, he's been updating his Facebook every last day or so over the past few weeks with these little bits of information about Jesus' genealogy. Throughout this time, he's highlighted some of the people who were kind of great, 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 great grandfathers and grandmothers of Jesus. And these are some of the comments that he made. 
the genealogy of Jesus includes Bathsheba to show that God can work through our mistakes and our sin. It includes Ruth to show that it's never too late. You can get a new start and a new family through Jesus. It includes Tamar to show that even the best families are still sinful families that need a saviour. Joseph to show a picture of salvation. Jesus was adopted into a family just as God adopts us into his family. Abraham, a pagan from Babylon, to show that God chases his enemies and makes them his friends. Mark Driscoll's point with all of this is to show that Jesus was born into a family. And he even said at one point, if you think your families are messed up, Jesus was born into a family that had prostitutes and perverts and a whole bunch of different things. My point here, though, is that God was telling an incredible redemptive story from the beginning. That Jesus was human. I think that that's what Matthew was saying at the start here, that Jesus was so human that he could trace his genealogy back 42 generations. You know, it was Abraham that started the genealogy of Christ thousands of years previous. He was part of a human family with a human genealogy. The Gospel of Mark, however, it begins a story with the old prophets. Mark talks about Isaiah, who prophesies the coming of John the Baptist, who will in turn prophesy and prepare the way for the coming of Christ. And uh, Matthew tells us of Jesus' kind of physical genealogy, whereas Mark gives us a spiritual version of his history. And finally, John, like I read earlier, begins his in kind of the most profound and poetic way. The famous passage, which I'm sure many of you know, which I read before, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then later in verse 14 it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word becoming flesh is the incarnation. And we have seen his glory, glory as of only the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's it. That's what the big miracle is at Christmas time. Jesus, the eternal word of God, through whom all things were made, was predestined through the plan of the Father, through the birthline of Abraham, who God appointed to be the father of the chosen people, and through the birthline of David, whom God appointed to be the king to the chosen people, whom the Old Testament prophets declared the coming of. This eternal God was born in a cave as a baby. Just a baby. Not a super baby either. He wasn't a super baby. I think that we kind of get a little bit confused when we think of the eternal God as a baby. He wasn't doing his own nappies. And he wasn't born talking. He was a flesh and blood, like you and me, baby. And he chose it. He entered the world that he created to save the people that he created that hated him. And he did it through incredible loving humility. I think that this is the crazy, mind-blowing part of Christmas that we can forget, that we can look past when we're putting up our Christmas tree and when we're buying presents for people. Lewis puts it like this again, the eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe, the eternal being who knows everything and created the whole universe became not only a man but before that a baby and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think of how you would like to become a slug or a crab. I, can't, I was talking to a mate of mine last night about this and we were just talking about how crazy it was and I was struggling to try to 
I was struggling to kind of work out a way to illustrate how insane it might be, but maybe some of you had an ant farm when you were younger. I have a weird recollection of having an ant farm. Did I have one? Yeah, mum says I did. Okay, I don't think it went very well. Uh, I hate ants. I don't even, it must have been a Christmas present, I'm sure. I'm pretty sure I drowned them pretty soon. But that actually kind of works in well with what I'm going to talk about, right? Imagine you had an ant farm, okay, and for some reason all the ants were going to die. You kind of just knew that the ants were going to die. What would you do? Would you care? I obviously didn't. I killed them myself. You know, maybe if you're some sort of bug freak that really liked bugs. I don't know anyone that's really obsessed with ants, to be honest, but maybe if you're really into ants, then maybe you would care that they're all going to die. But for most of us, we probably really wouldn't care. They're just ants after all. Imagine then that the only way for your ants to survive was to actually become one of the ants yourself. The lowest of the low ants. Not like the king ant, or is only a queen ant, isn't there? Not the queen ant. Okay, the lowest of the low ants. And you have to be born into the little weird egg. You know, you don't just start as an ant, you start as a tiny ant. And you have to live as an ant for a while in the ant farm where no one knows that you are the, you are the guy who's come down to look after everybody. And eventually, you have to allow that the ants in your ant farm are going to torture and murder you. Would you do it for some ants? For just some useless little ants, of which there are billions just in my garden, which I don't want there. I go and kill them on purpose. I definitely wouldn't do it. Obviously, that's a pretty huge hypothetical. But seriously, who would do that? It's crazy. They're just ants. They're not worth that kind of love and that kind of treatment. You see, God didn't have to save us. In a way... He kind of did, but only because it's in his nature. There was no external force. Oh, power, that'd be sweet. I thought it was plugged in. There's one up the back. Oh, there it is. Thank you. Sorry. There's no external force that was pushing God and forcing him to come and save us outside of his own nature, his own loving nature that did it. You know, there wasn't anyone saying, you better go and do this, God. Come on, go and save them. It was Jesus' choice to come to earth and save us. And which of us would make that choice to subject ourselves to ant poverty and ant torture and ant execution? That would be a cross, I guess, with six cross you know, things on it. I think it's six or eight, I've got no idea. But just to save some worthless ants. You know, Jesus did that for us. That's what happens at Christmas time. He subjected himself to that. What happened at Easter began at Christmas 33 years before. And he did it all and started it all as a helpless little baby. He who had possessed all power was dependent on his mother for everything. He got cold, he got hungry, he got colic, he had to be burped. His glorious divine existence had been exchanged for the comparative squalor of life as a human being. Whereas once he could roam the universe unencumbered by the limitations of time and space, now he was wrapped in swaddling clothes, unable to move. He could get tired, dirty and discouraged. He would have to learn to crawl, to talk and to feed. By a miracle that passes human comprehension, the creator entered his own creation. The eternal entered time God became human in order to die and rise again for the salvation of all people. Lewis says again, he comes down, I got that one? No. 
He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still to the womb, down to the very roots and seabed of nature that he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruin, ruined world up with him. We're finishing up soon. I want to read a little bit of St. Athanasius, who I think Sondi's quoted before, a bit of Athanasius. He wrote a book on the Incarnation around 350 AD. So this is an old book. Um, and it's, incredible, uh, it's incredibly insightful, particularly. Uh, this is what, some of what he wrote. You can just follow along with me. Now, this is obviously an old book, so it's a little bit complicated. And like I've already said, it's a complicated idea. But see what you can do. Focus on the incredible miracle and the love that, that God has for us, that he would do this for us. The renewal of creation has been wrought by the self-same word who made it in the beginning. There is thus no inconsistency between creation and salvation, for the one Father has employed the same agent, both for works affecting the salvation of the world through the same word who made it in the beginning. It was unworthy of the goodness of God that creatures made by him should be brought to nothing through the deceit wrought upon man by the devil. And it was supremely unfitting that the work of God in mankind should disappear, either through their own negligence or through the deceit of evil spirits. What, or rather who, was it that was needed for such grace and such recall as we required? Who, save the word of God himself, who was also in the beginning, had, had made all things out of nothing? For part... His part it was, and his alone, both to bring again the corruptible to incorruption and to maintain for the Father his consistency of character with all. For he alone, being word of the Father and above all, was in consequence both able to recreate all and worthy to suffer on behalf of all and to be an ambassador for all with the Father. You know, last, uh, two weeks ago, Sonny talked about the way that Jesus is the high priest, the perfect high priest, the perfect ambassador between us and the Father. For this purpose then, the incorporeal and incorruptible and immaterial word of God entered our world. In one sense indeed, he was not far from it before, for no part of creation had ever been without him who, while ever abiding in union with the Father, yet fills all things that are. But now he entered the world in a new way, stooping to our level, in his love and self-revealing to us. The incarnation, what happened at Christmas time, is the great miracle. It laid the way for the cross. If Jesus hadn't been born a baby, he wouldn't have died a man and conquered death for all of us. Christmas matters because Easter matters. I'm going to finish up with a quote from Peter Kreeft, who is writing here about... Uh, enacting the cross. He says, How should I enact the cross in my life? For the cross is in my life. It is not a freak, but a universal truth incarnated, not merely a once-for-all event outside me in space and time in Israel AD 29, separated from me by 8,000 miles and 2,000 years, but also a continuing event within me, or rather, I within it. It might seem a little bit strange to end a message about Christmas by talking about Easter, but that's what it's all about. It's too easy to become deadened to the simplistic idea of the baby in the manger, no crying he made. It's too easy to explain away the incarnation by, or not grapple with the complexity and the magic of it by thinking of Jesus as either just a man 
or just God. If he is just a man, there's nothing incredible about it. If he is just God, well, he may be incredible, but it's nothing difficult for him to do. But if he is both, if the eternal word of God inhabited a human body and subjected himself to the will of the Father and the limitations and squalor of humanity, also that he could live and die for the humans that hated him, then it is truly the greatest miracle of all. Remember that in these weeks leading up to Christmas, remember it. We know Jesus' death was brutal. But the fact that he was born at all was so far below him that we ought to be eternally grateful for his great love and mercy. We focus at Easter time on the love of Christ, of the sacrifice that he made for us. But the sacrifice began when he was born as a lowly infant that needed help from his mother. When the eternal being that has always existed, who didn't have to do it, decided to come to earth to live for 33 years as a human, with human inability, just so that he could die for people that hated him. This is the first of the series of incarnation. And in the next two weeks, Sondi and Nathan will talk about how God is fully man, how Jesus was fully man and fully God. But hopefully it set the scene and set up for the next three weeks of just marvelling at how incredible it even was that Jesus deigned to condescend, to come to earth, to subject himself to humanity. You pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much for your love for us, for the incredible miracle that you performed, the greatest miracle of condescending and becoming one of us so you could set us free. God, I pray over the next few weeks that in conversations that we have with people, we are able to remember, as the cliche says, the reason for the season, but not just in a simplistic way, but that we would be uh, filled with gratitude, thankfulness for your love and for your mercy, for what you did, for something that none of us would do for a bunch of worthless ants, but for what you did for us, though you knew what it meant Thank you for your love. Amen.